Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hi, this is Latifa Alatas. I am not able to come to the phone right now, but if you leave a brief message, I will get back to you as soon as possible. Have a good day. Latifa, hey, it's Luke. I was actually just calling to get your thoughts on something. So 30 years ago this week, just a few days before your birthday, happy birthday, by the way, your then hero, Madonna, was at the center of all kinds of controversy because ABC aired the really sexually explicit music video for her song, Justify My Love on their evening news show, Nightline. And it was like a really big deal. It wound up getting banned from MTV and pretty much every other network. And so I have a feeling it was probably 30 years ago this week that you were also banned from listening to her. Just a wild guess. Anyway, hope you're doing well. Happy birthday. Talk to you soon. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 48, Earworms, Chipmunks, and a Little Jerk. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, December 8, 1990. Welcome, friends, to another episode of 30 Pop. I'm so glad to have you and thrilled to share that the technical issues I was working through last week have been resolved and we're now back on track with our nice long look back at one of, if not my very favorite film of the 90s, and honestly, maybe of all time, Home Alone. But before we get into our next cast member interview, let's see what the rest of the pop culture world looked like this week in 1990. For starters, we had, inexplicably, a new number one single in the country this week, replacing Whitney Houston's far, far, far superior, I'm Your Baby Tonight. It's not entirely shocking that there was a new top song, but it is shocking that it was this song, Because I Love You, the Postman song by Stevie B. Because I love you, now do anything. I give you my heart, my everything. I don't really even know what to say about this song. As per the old adage about how to handle situations in which you can't say anything nice, I probably shouldn't say anything at all. But this is the number one song in the country for the final four weeks of 1990. And I'm committed to my work of reviewing our pop culture past, no matter how cringy it may be. So, because duty calls, let me just say I'm not sure I could dislike this song any more than I already do. The synthesized piano and string instrumentation throughout, Stevie B's signature whiny vocals, the very poorly written lyrics, the monotonously static and repetitive melody. Where do I even begin? I do understand on some level why this became the top song in the country. The chorus hook is immediately memorable, if not impossible to forget. Once you've heard it even one time, it seems to sort of drone on in your mind forevermore. Once it's there, it's there permanently, not unlike malaria. 
It's the unfortunate epitome of an earworm, so good luck getting any sleep once you've heard it. I have included a link to the equally uninteresting music video in the show notes, though, if you care to test your luck. The good news is that where the Hot 100 chart failed us this week, or perhaps where we failed it, the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart still rightly saw Whitney Houston in the top spot with, as I mentioned, I'm Your Baby Tonight. The Hot Rap chart had a new number one single with British rapper Moni Love's song, Moni in the Middle. This was the first of three charting singles off 20-year-old Love's debut album, Down to Earth, which had released in late October of 1990. The song landed her a Grammy nomination in 1991 for Best Rap Solo Performance and established her as one of rap music's pioneering female voices, a voice she has since leveraged into a long and successful career on the airwaves as a radio personality at various hip-hop stations across the U.S. In country music this week in 1990, we had a new but familiar chart topper the already legendary George Strait, with his song, I've Come to Expect It From You. How could you do what you've gone and done to me? I wouldn't treat a dog the way you treated me. But that's what I get. I've come to expect it from you. When I say George Strait was already legendary, here's what I mean. The song was his 33rd career radio single and his 30th consecutive charting radio single. The first three singles of his career released in 1976, 78, and 79 respectively didn't chart at all. But over the course of the last 40 years, since the release of Unwound, the first single from his debut album, Straight Country, in 1981, he's only had two releases that didn't find success on the charts. At this point in his career in 1990, of the 30 consecutive charting singles he'd released, all of which had cracked the top 20, only one had failed to make it into the top 10, and only 10 hadn't reached number one. That was kind of a confusing sentence, so let me say it again. Of the 30 consecutive charting singles he'd released, all of which cracked the top 20, only one had failed to make it into the top 10, and only 10 hadn't reached number one. That's an insane streak, and it was at worst only about halfway through at this point in 1990. George's success continued to build momentum throughout the early 90s, and he remains one of country music's biggest stars ever today, among the ranks of Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, and Johnny Cash. In television news this week in 1990, on December 1st, we saw the series finale of another beloved and long-running cartoon, Alvin and the Chipmunks. I remember loving this show and these characters, but didn't really know any of the history around them until prepping for this episode. It turns out the Chipmunks are actually a wildly successful virtual band created by singer-songwriter Ross Bagdasarian, whose stage name was David Seville, for a novelty record he produced in 1958, the Chipmunk song, Christmas Don't Be Late. Christmas, Christmas time is near. 
The song, in which lead vocalist Alvin sings of his longing to receive a hula hoop, the year's hottest toy for Christmas, sold over 4 million copies in only seven weeks and was the number one song on the Billboard charts for four consecutive weeks in late 1958 and early 59. In fact, it was the only Christmas song to ever top that chart until December of last year, when Mariah Carey's 1994 release, All I Want for Christmas is You, reached number one a shocking 25 years after it released. The Chipmunk song was nominated for four Grammys, including Record of the Year, and won three of them. So by the time the cartoon came around in 1983, the Chipmunks, now voiced by their late creator's son, Ross Bagdasarian Jr., and his wife, Janice Carmen, were well-established cultural icons, and they remain so even beyond this series finale and into the 21st century. In theaters this week, we saw yet another release that couldn't claim the top spot at the box office from Home Alone. In fact, it's unlikely that it could have been number one even if Home Alone hadn't been in theaters, considering the other recent releases against which it was competing. Dances with Wolves, Misery, Predator 2, Rocky V, and Three Men and a Little Lady. But it did have some star power. The buddy cop action film, The Rookie. A little early for Christmas shopping, ain't it? Who's up front in the cab? Santa Claus. And I'm the Tooth Fairy. Clint Eastwood is Sergeant Nick Polovsky. What you might call a seasoned cop. Charlie Sheen is Detective David Ackerman. What you definitely call a rookie. Good work, kid. Now read them their rights. You think I like dragging around after you all day? I hate it. And I hate the way you drive. Shut up. reasons why I don't blow you away. Right now, I can't think of one. It's time for me to stop being scared. For other people to start. When I go, I go with a bang. Fasten your seatbelt. Clint Eastwood, Charlie Sheen, Raul Julia, Sonia Braga, The Rookie. You're too far from your thoughts, am I? From my nightmares, it's more like it. As you can likely tell from the trailer, this movie was filled with explosions, one-liners, and expensive stunt sequences. But despite moderate financial success, grossing over $20 million over the course of its five-week theatrical run, it was considered a critical failure, especially for its star and director, Clint Eastwood. Understandably, the film found itself in third place its opening weekend behind Misery and Home Alone, which was at this point enjoying its fourth consecutive week at the top of the box office. I had a chance this past week to hop on a call with the actor who played another memorable character from this cinematic holiday classic, Jerry Bammon, or, as you might know him, Kevin's verbally abusive cheapskate Uncle Frank. That's real. That's real crystal. It's real. Put him in your purse. Put him, put him, put him. Put them in your purse. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, fill it up, fill it up. Fill it up, please. 
Thank you. I loved getting to chat with Jerry this week. So similar to my Larry Hankin interview a couple episodes back, I want to share it with you now and it's almost entirely raw and unedited form. Here's our conversation. Jerry, welcome to 30 Pop. Such a joy to have you on. Thank you. You played 30 years ago this week, Uncle Frank in the first Home Alone movie. And I have, have a, as I mentioned to you before the interview started, I'm a huge fan of this movie. And we're spending the next several weeks on the show looking back at what I believe to be a perfect film, Home Alone. And you're one of the few big fans of the show. Oh, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> I may be the biggest, though. I have actually, you know, I, I produce a lot of podcasts and have thought for years. I've really given honest consideration to starting a show that was entirely about Home Alone and making the case that this is a perfect film. <laughs> and so it's such a joy for me to get to talk to you. You were such a villain, though, to me as a kid. You know, I I never get to play the villain. I'm always the fly in the hero's face. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, the hero or the villain, I I don't get cast. Uh, I'm just this irritant. I love that. That's but you're you're honestly one of my favorite characters. And you are part of the reason why I think Home Alone is a perfect movie. You have these moments in the script that I just think are so priceless and those being, uh, in particular, like when the pizzas arrive and you're like, ah, it's my brother's house, he'll pay for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also trying to like steal the silver from first class, yeah, you know, yeah. on the, yeah. So yeah. I would just love to hear from you. What was it like getting cast for this role? What was kind of your idea for uncle Frank? Like how much of that was given to you and how much of that did you just sort of improvise? Well, Chris was very open. Chris Columbus, the mm-hmm. director. So, I mean, I didn't know what this film was. I auditioned for a film. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know whether it was the first audition or, the, or maybe a callback, but he asked me to do just a kind of riff in response to um, Catherine in the plane realizing that she doesn't have Kevin. The captain's doing all he can. Your phones are still out of order. We'll call as soon as we land, Kate. I'm sure everything's okay. Horrible. Horrible. Just horrible. How could we do this? We forgot him. We didn't forget him. We just miscounted. What kind of mother am I? If it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading classes. And I did about a, I don't know, three or four minute improvisation about, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I mean, he may be frozen in the snow by the time we get back, but he'll have had fun, and et cetera. And he he loved it. And so I guess you could say to that extent, I bent the 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 trajectory a, a tiny bit. But no, it was written. I mean, uh, I didn't make up the lines, uh, uh, look what you did, you little jerk. Uh, uh, I didn't make up the situation of stealing the salt and pepper. I, 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 I had incredible fun doing it I'm because sure. uh, it, it's so up my alley uh but uh but you know the, the, the those were those were scripted moments um, yeah and then in the second film i think he was giving me a little more leeway when when we were shooting the shower scene or preparing mm. to shoot it he started to tell me what i should do and i said wait 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 wait, wait. i mean i had been listening to that song and choreographing it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I said, just let me show you what 
I've got in my mind. And he said, oh, my God, you've really thought this through. <laughs> and, and he just let me do it. But, you know, most of the stuff, especially in all those group scenes, you can't have everybody going off and just doing whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, well, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about is that. So the opening scene of the film is like there's this chaos going on in the McAllister home. And I'm curious on set, like, was it equally chaotic to have that many players kind of working off of each other at the same time? It wouldn't be quite so chaotic if 10 of the players, I think, weren't, weren't, between, weren't between 5 and 15. Yeah. I mean, that energy was just total chaos. I'm uh, sure. And the fact that Chris could control it all and not quash it is a great tribute to him. I'm curious with, you know, like Catherine Hare was already a pretty big name. I mean, she'd already had some pretty big roles at that point in her career. You know, Pesci obviously was coming off. I guess the Goodfellas didn't hadn't released yet at that point, but he had had some other major, major roles. And so I'm curious, like coming in, obviously with the film being written by John Hughes, directed by Chris Columbus, was there anybody that you came in that you were like, just very excited or very intimidated to work with? Well, Joe, I mean, I just think he's one of the great actors of my lifetime. I agree. And um, I didn't get to know him well, but there were a couple of times when we were waiting, you know, to shoot and had, therefore, time together. And he would just go off on monologues that um, were so funny and so interesting and so moody i mean he he was sort of venting about mm-hmm. the idiots he, he had just had to work with on a film and uh, and how they had ruined the film and but but it was so funny and uh, I, i'm sure he wouldn't remember it. uh it, he was just passing the time waiting yeah. for the uh, waiting for us to be called to set but it was a memorable moment for me there's a scene in goodfellas where he's like in the club and like he's sort of riffing in that way with everybody, yeah. you know, he's just, everyone's just sort of locked in listening. He's regaling them with his stories. And that's kind of how I imagine Joe Pesci being in real life. Like, I feel like that's pretty much. But I think you could be. also run into him and and he's in a mood and he doesn't even say hello to you. He just. Yeah. And, but, you know, he, that's just who he is. Yeah. So you never shared screen time with Daniel Stern, but he was also kind of at a peak in his career or an exciting time in his career as well. I'm curious yeah. if you had any, any sort of interaction with him or, or stories from working with Stern. I had almost no uh, contact with him that I can remember. I had a lot of contact with Macaulay and the parents and mm-hmm. and most of the kids. What was it like with Macaulay in particular? So I know his first kind of blockbuster success was Uncle Buck, which I would assume was hitting theaters around the time y'all were filming. I don't know when exactly this was filmed, but Uncle Buck was, you know, released a year early. You know, I, I have to confess that I had never heard of Uncle Buck and never really? saw it. Oh, wow. So it, it didn't impress me. Yeah. Um, but I have always thought, from the time I worked with him, that he was an extremely precocious and talented young actor. And by precocious, I don't mean anything negative by it. He's precocious in the sense that he knew what he was doing. Hmm. And he had ideas and would, you know, articulate them to Chris. And it was pretty impressive for somebody that young, I thought. I think that's really amazing. I'm curious how it was. Like, there's, you just couldn't have known how massively successful the film was going to be. I mean, it was the number one at the box office for months. No way. I always said, ever since it became such a success, that 
everybody on that set would have been thrilled if it had been a bigger hit as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm-hmm. But it blew past that. Completely, uh, yeah. Way, way. Past everything. I mean, I, so I've been doing this show for, at this point, uh, right around two years. And so every week we're looking back exactly 30 years at what was happening in pop culture. And this is the first movie that we've hit that has held the box office for like so incredibly long. I don't know that we'd had a film that had done it more than like three weeks prior to this. Uh-huh. And it's like eight or 10 weeks or something. I mean, it's just, it's a crazy amount of time well past the holidays. It's also lasted. It's become this Christmas uh, annual event. Yeah. So what is that like? I asked, the, I interviewed Larry Hankin last week who played Officer Balzac. He had a very, you know, brief but memorable role in the film. And I asked him like, what is it like to know that you are a part of one of what has become a true holiday classic? Well, it's fun. And it's, uh, since I love the film and think it's worth the attention it's gotten, it's satisfying. Um, it made me think of something, but now it's slipped out of my mind. So, Well, I'm curious if you have any sort of like anecdotes or memories from being on set, just things that jump out at you that were particularly fun or funny that the folks may not know about. Well, I, 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 people know about this because it's been shown in the outtakes from the film in a lot of places, but it was scripted that I pants him. Yeah, this is the Yank, Uncle Yank or something scene. Right, I've seen this right, as a deleted scene. And that was in the script, but they decided that it was just a little bit too brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and they cut it out. Um, oh, the other thing that slipped my mind, because it's sort of related to how do you feel about this lasting and being so successful, is that I ran across this article I don't know how it came to my attention. It's several months ago. It's not not very long ago, in which somebody was talking without mentioning my name or the name of the character. That one of the most iconic lines now in film history is, uh, "Look what you did, you little jerk." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't aware. <laughs> I mean, it's a regular quote from me for sure. I say it to people all the time. Well. Thank you again so much for your time and for your contribution to like holiday culture, pop culture (laughs) forever. Okay. Thank you. All right, Jerry. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. If someone had told me at age 11 that 30 years later, I'd have a conversation with Uncle Frank himself, I'd have simply never believed it especially if you told me it would happen over a video call on a computer screen. But alas, it happened, and I loved it. Huge thanks to Jerry for his time and for playing one of the most lovable, least likable characters of my childhood. Thanks also to you for listening, as always. I'll be back again next week with another Home Alone cast member interview, so definitely be sure to join me again then. In the meantime, friends, be good to one another, take care of yourselves, and remember, all the great ones leave their mark. We're the Wet Bandits. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com.